Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning. So over the past few weeks, we've been on a journey. We've been on a journey through the Gospel of Luke. We've been trying to make sense of these little short stories that Jesus was really well known for, parables. And one of the most striking things about Luke's presentation of Jesus' ministry is his focus on a series of opposites. There's judges and widows, Jews and Samaritans, the clean and the not-so-clean, unclean, the able-bodied and the disabled, the rich and the poor, the lost and the found. And with each parable, our minds have been teased into active thought. Our lives have been challenged, I pray and hope. And our expectations about the character and the kingdom of God overturned. And in our passage this morning, Luke 18, 9 through 14, we meet another pair of opposites, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now in short, the Pharisee is blinded by pride and doesn't see himself as a sinner. Instead of recognizing his own sin, the Pharisee is quick to recognize the sin of others. He doesn't ask God for anything, but rather boasts about himself and ends up rejecting the gift of God, God's mercy. Yet there is an unlikely character who emerges in this story, a tax collector among all people, a tax collector who was typically looked down upon in this society and in all societies. And unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector realizes his desperate need and is moved to humbly ask God for mercy. In this parable, Jesus makes known that the kingdom of God is not like any kingdom that you or I know. Because this is the kingdom where the wrong person is given the verdict of righteousness. Now, before I impact some of these things, I want us to consider some, some questions. Some questions I think are important and questions I think Jesus actually answers in this parable. And here's the first one. I encourage you to write these down. The first question is this. What counts as righteousness before God? What actually counts as righteousness before God. The second question, how do we view our sin versus the sin of others? How do we view our sin versus the sin of others? Question number three, what sins are you most comfortable with? And what sins are easier to point out? What sins are you most comfortable with? And what sins are easier to point out? And lastly, in what ways do we exalt ourselves above others? As modern day readers, it may be difficult for us to actually grasp how unsettling Jesus' parable is. That is, how astonished his hearers would have been on hearing that a tax collector above all people was the one declared righteous. 
For Jesus' hearers, this parable was shocking to the core. It was unsettling in this very way. And I think it's worth us trying to understand why that is the case. You see, some of us, I assume or presume, rightly or wrongly, may be familiar with the characters in this story. We've heard about tax collectors and Pharisees, that is. We know that Pharisees are respected religious leaders and that tax collectors in any culture are not exactly looked upon with great affection. But I would argue that this basic familiarity does not quite get at the contrast that Jesus sets up in this parable. In Jesus' day, Pharisees were considered faithful and dependable. They were assumed righteous before God. Today, we might liken the Pharisee to the church member who is devoted, who shows up for the town hall meeting earlier than anyone else, who is committed to the vision and the mission. There's a distinction of the local church who is very involved, generous, and faithful. They are the ones you know that we can count on. Raise your hand if you're a Pharisee. And the tax collector, it's not the person who works for Guilford County Tax Office. It's not the Department of Motor Vehicle person who sends you that annual tax collection fee. Rather, the tax collector is someone within who works out with. That is, someone who is working for a foreign government, using extortion to collect taxes from their own people. And the tax collector in our parable this morning is a participant in an unjust system, a traitor who is considered religiously unclean. His life was a walking offense. So if Pharisees were respected, then attitudes toward tax collectors were very close to the very opposite. In fact, tax collectors were known for their dishonesty, and in fact, In Jewish law, they were classified with murderers and robbers. They were the people to whom the law said, you don't even have to tell the truth to. In fact, there are many examples of entire towns picking up and moving to avoid tax collectors. Because for many, this unjust system left them so poor that they could not provide food and shelter for their families. You know, maybe the best visceral parallel for us is the vicious debt collector who hounds on you day and night when you've gotten behind on your medical bills and your credit cards are maxed out and your debt has been sold to some collection agency. I don't know, but what I want you to do right now is to think low. The lowest of the lowest in our society. For me, the current parallel is the low-level parasitic underling working for the tow truck company that tried to take advantage of my family in one of the most difficult times in my life. On April 21st, 2006, my wife, Leah, was in an extraordinary, terrible accident. And if it wasn't for the sheer mercy of God, she wouldn't be alive. And I... Uh, Two of my kids, Genevieve and Cassian, would not exist. And in many ways, Church of the Redeemer, a large portion of what happens right now for you all, wouldn't look the same. To make a long story short, my wife, Leah, 
She lost the ability to respond while driving about 55 miles an hour down a four-lane highway in Raleigh, North Carolina. And without the ability to move, but fully aware of what was happening, with her foot on the gas pedal, she ran into a flatbed transfer trailer truck loaded with bricks that had just stopped at a stop sign. To this day, she can still remember the crunch. She can still smell the odor of the metal. And upon impact, the engine of the car, it was a 1995 Cutlass Supreme station wagon. Thank God it was made of metal. But the engine of the car was pushed down and through the entire dashboard in a way that left her right foot, which was still on the gas pedal, flipped inside out and pushed up halfway the length of her leg. Her tailless bone had been split in two. She could see the end of her leg in the gas pedal, but her toes somewhere around her knee. In addition, her femur bone on her right leg had also been pushed back in and through her velvet bone, shattering her right hip. All the emergency responders were not only amazed that somehow she was still alive, but that she was still not yet going into shock and somehow assisted in her own rescue. And there's much more to this story I would love to tell you, maybe tonight. But I highlight the dire nature of this accident because when I arrived at the scene of the wreck, one of the first people to approach me as I was running with full force to the ambulance was a tow truck worker who stopped me physically to inform me that I owed him money for his services and that I would need to pay the bill in 24 hours or else I would be charged an additional amount for each day thereafter. You see, at that time of my life, I could think nothing other than this guy is the scum of the earth. And to be honest with you all, it wasn't until last week that Drew, your pastor, encouraged me. He had the, the audacity to say to me, this guy probably could have been just trying to get money to pay the debt collector for his wife's medical bills. In fact... Drew's challenge really made me reconsider who's righteous and unrighteous in my own story. You see, Jesus' parable is so unsettling because I imagine that the one that I deem parasitic, if he were to fall down before God and say, Lord, have mercy, God would say to me, Benjamin, I tell you this man went home justified. So as we think low in our attempt to make sense of modern-day tax collectors, be careful. Be very careful not to thank God that you are not like them, you Pharisee. So the contrast is set. A Pharisee and a tax collector. In Jesus' world, the Pharisee is the good guy, and the tax collector, well, it's scum, and there's no two ways about it. That's what makes it shocking. But this parable is not just about two people as much as it is about their prayers, and in particular, what their prayers are revealing to us about their understanding of God, about others, and themselves. So in this parable, Jesus says, the Pharisee does what? The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. 
But Jesus says the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And believe it or not, the issue here has even less to do with what the two men are praying and everything to do with the posture of their praying. You see, both men could have been reciting the Psalms. In fact, when the tax collector pleads, God have mercy on me, I am a sinner, it's just like Psalm 51. Psalm 51 says, have mercy on me, O God, and cleanse me from my sin. And when the Pharisee prays, well, he too sounds like he's praying the Psalm of David in Psalm 17. If you test me, you will find no wickedness in me. As for what others do, I have avoided their ways. So both could have been reciting the Psalms. Both could have very well be reciting Scripture. However, something is off with the Pharisee. Jesus says he prayed to himself, which hints at either he took a prominent position or that he intentionally separated himself from others to avoid contact. And notice the posture of these two men. Notice where they're actually looking. The tax collector is looking down at the ground. He won't even lift his eyes toward heaven. But the Pharisee isn't looking up either. He looks sideways. He's looking at the guy standing next to him. And as one scholar puts it, his prayer is one of peripheral vision. Which is to say that his eye is not on God, it's on himself in comparison to his neighbor. In other words, the Pharisee's prayer is self-centered. So the error of the Pharisee is that he is too confident in himself. He believes that he can be obedient to God and still have disdain for people like the tax collector. That he can fulfill the law of God with no attention to the love command. He is certain that his acts put him in good standing with God and that his pious acts make him better than others. And what may have started as a legitimate affirmation that he has kept the covenant of the Lord has quickly deterred into disdain for others and self-congratulation. So if it's true for this person, how can this be true for us and of us? How do we do the same thing? Jesus repeatedly emphasized that one cannot be obedient to God's law without loving one's neighbor as oneself. As we read and heard read this morning before we sang, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. On us. Jesus frequently challenges those who are certain of their good standing with God to reconsider. 
And this challenge is still true, if not all the more today. And it is here that Jesus begins to provide a clear response to those questions, particularly the first one, what counts as righteousness before God? So if we're defining righteousness in terms of what we do, right, then all righteous acts that we may do without compassion and love are not considered righteous by or before God. Scripture is clear. If I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give all that I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Scripture is clear that all righteous acts we may do without love are nothing. They are not considered righteous before God or by God. And in Jesus' parable, those who recognize their own sin, as we see next, are the very ones in the place where God can do the most significant work. And this too is still, if not all the more true today. Is it not? Those who recognize their own sin actually are in the very place where God can do his most significant work. This is the good news, sisters and brothers. And maybe that's you this morning. If this is you, then please listen to these words. God loves you. Period. God is at work in your life. What we learn in this parable is that what counts as righteousness before God is true humility before the Lord. It is the recognition of our utter need for God's mercy, for God's compassion, for God's forgiveness. For Jesus does not come for the healthy. Jesus does not come for the righteous. Jesus comes for sick Ridden sinners. The tax collector is made righteous because his plea for God's mercy is in accord with Jesus' teaching on the mercy of God. The point here is that God is the one who justifies. Which is to say that righteousness has more to do with what God does and less to do with what we do. For Jesus says, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified by who? God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the one who presumed to be righteous before God has no need to acknowledge God, that he justifies. But the other can only throw himself down on the mercy of God, acknowledging that it is God alone who can justify. And so here is the essential contrast. One makes a claim to righteousness based on his accomplishments, while the other relies entirely on the mercy of God. 
Rather than being grateful for his blessings, the Pharisee appears to be pleased with himself to the point of despising others. And in his mind, there are two kinds of people, the righteous and the immoral, and he is grateful that he has placed himself among the righteous. So where do we place ourselves? I'm orthodox, not heretical. Oh, you're conservative, not liberal, or vice versa, and so on and so on. There are so many ways that we divide the world in two, believing we are right, if not righteous. The tax collector, on the other hand, isn't so much humble as desperate. He's too overwhelmed in his plight to take time to divide humanity into sides. All he recognizes as he stands near the temple is his own great need for forgiveness and mercy. And there he stakes his hopes and claims not on anything that he has done or deserved, but entirely on the mercy of God. And here is where the unsettling scandal of the parable lies. God justifies those who acknowledge and recognize their utter need for him. And it is at this point Interestingly, that the parable begins to escape its own narrative setting. Let me explain. The parable begins to reveal to those who have ears to hear and those who have eyes to see that it's not primarily about self-righteousness and humility any more than it is about a pious Pharisee and a desperate tax collector. Because if it were, then Luke himself, The division within the narrative itself between self-righteous and the humble would fall prey to the same temptation the Pharisee is guilty of, to divide humanity into groups and then align ourselves squarely with the righteous. Lord, I thank you that I'm not self-righteous like this prideful Pharisee. That's not the point. Luke is not saying you should be grateful that you're like the tax collector. No, if anything, Jesus is saying to us we're Pharisees and tax collectors at the same time. This parable is about God. God who alone can judge the human heart. God who determines to justify the ungodly. And at the end of the story, the Pharisee leaves the temple in the same way he came, assuming himself righteous. The tax collector, however, will leave the temple and go back down to his home, justified. That is, accounted righteous by the Holy One of Israel. But how has this happened? The tax collector, he doesn't make restitution. He doesn't offer a sacrifice. That's what you do when you go to the temple. On what basis has this happened? How is he named righteous? It is on the basis of God and God's divine mercy. Amen? How easy is it for us to miss the significant fact that the temple was the place for seeking forgiveness? We can do the same with the church. Why are you here?
Why are we here this morning? And here's another interesting fact about this parable. The tax collector doesn't even know the outcome of his prayer. He's a lot like the goats and the sheep over in Matthew 25. Neither of them know the consequence or the reward for their faith or their lack of faith. It's not until they're before the throne of God. You see, for the tax collector, the verdict of him being made righteous actually stands outside the parable. There is no basis for him on the way home to congratulate himself. And so maybe we are to interpret this parable in a way we find ourselves with nothing to claim. Maybe we are to interpret this parable in a way we find ourselves with nothing to claim, but our dependency on God's mercy And not in a God help me to be humble like the tax collector and not prideful like the Pharisee type of way, but rather in the way the sermon began. Please pray with me. Lord Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us, your church, sinners. May we return home this day in mercy, in grace, and in gratitude. Amen.